from Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Duvall, and this is a Vimecare podcast next round conversation. We're bringing you these episodes in between our regular podcasts so that we can explore a range of issues and stories in the drinks world. And today I'm speaking with restaurateur and author Bricia Lopez. Bricia, thanks so much for your time. Oh, no, thank you for having me, Zach. Yeah, um, I'm super excited. I, I, I love to talk about agave spirits and mezcal in particular because I yeah. feel like it's still this incredible, for, for a lot of drinkers in the U.S., it's still a category that people um, don't know a lot about and, and have a lot yeah. of misconceptions about. And I'm certainly hoping that you can help us clear some of those up. So maybe we can just start with a, a little bit of your own backstory. And, and you know, I mentioned uh, that you're a restaurateur and an author. So if you can talk a little bit about your, your restaurants and, and your writing and and your kind of seems like lifelong experience with mezcal just kind of give us a little backstory oh for sure uh gosh where to start well i was born in oaxaca um in mexico in the southern region of mexico i moved to la when i was 10 years old with my family my father started a restaurant um by the name of Gelaguetza, which is still around um and i run that restaurant today with my siblings with my sister my brother and i it's in Koreatown. And we specialize in everything that has to do with Oaxacan cooking and mezcal, of course. And in 2019, I published our cookbook called Oaxaca, Home Cooking from the Heart of Mexico, where we shared, where I shared the recipes um, that I grew up eating, the recipes that my mom uh, cooked for us as children. Uh, there we dove into my family's story and, you know, all the whole history of what Galaguetza was um, and what it is today and how it has evolved, you know, with now the second generation taking it over. And yeah, that's a little bit about me. My journey with Mezcal started, I want to say, before I was even conceived. My <laughs> grandfather, my great-grandfather, my father, my uncles, my cousins, they all are in the mezcal world. Um, but I think that's a very common thing. I was born in Mitla, my, which is a town right next door to where my father is from. My father is from Matatlan. So if you are from Matatlan, is basically you either make mezcal or your friend makes mezcal or your cousin makes mezcal. It is a mezcal you know, village. Um, and it is one of those regions that a lot of mezcal comes from nowadays. So it's not, it's not, I'm not like, it's not a unique thing for me to say I'm from Atatlan and my mezcal journey begun, you know, before I was born. It's, it's natural for us because we're from that region. Right. And my entire family, my great grandfather, like I said, my god, my grand, my grandfather, my father, my uncles, and my father was a mezcal maker. And I grew up when I when we lived in Oaxaca. That's what my dad did. He made mezcal. He had, he was, I think, a pioneer really in you know branding a mezcal by the name and having a mezcal store. I think if any of you who are listening go to Oaxaca today, you will see that there are dozens of mezcal stores now it's evolved obviously but um before it was like a mezcal store and they would only sell sell that brand of mezcal there so definitely my father was a pioneer and where he opened up a mezcal store he branded it as his mezcal and he only sold his mezcal and I was I would take care of his shop at like seven eight nine years old and it was very normal obviously if you 
you know, it's 2021, you know, we all live in the U.S. I mean, I think some of the, you know, majority of your listeners probably live in some sort of metropolitan city are probably like, what do you mean you were nine years old taking care of a mezcal shop? It's a different time, a different place. You know, my sister and I would take care of the shop, open, close, and I would, you know, you know, wrangle up tourists and I would introduce them to mezcal and we would talk about it and we would cut up lemons and oranges and we would tell them how to drink it. And in many, you know, in many ways, I was, I've been doing that all my life. I mean, I'm 35 and I feel like I'm still doing that, <laughs> like bringing people to <laughs> mezcal and to Oaxacan cooking. Um, so yeah, I've been doing this since I was, you know, since I can remember, like, I don't remember a life without mezcal. And that's not in a way of saying like, I was drinking mezcal, <laughs> my family was getting drunk with mezcal, it was just always there. I do remember, you know, the way my dad would fill up the bottles, he, bottles of mezcal, his mezcal, you know, us as kids, we would put on the label, like, you know, we would always work in the family business. Um, and he would, and he would, I don't even know how you call this, siphon the mezcal with like a little hose, like he would like sort yeah. of like, yeah. So I remember when I was kind of left there by myself once, I tried to do it just because I was trying to mimic my father, right? And I was trying to help him. And like, I remember the mezcal, like just kind of like, coming and I was like I think I was nine at the time and I just like I remember like that moment where <laughs> I just felt like all the smoke kind of coming into my head you know and I was uh -huh. just like oh my god that was like my first introduction I would say to the spirit and what it tasted like again this is you know in the 90s we were in Mexico different time it's not 2021 in LA by any means I would not allow my child to siphon the scale of, of a tank uh, but yeah that's the way we grew up as kids and you know today um you know I run Galagetza along with my siblings and you know that's that's you know our, our life mission has always been to to really champion Oaxacan cooking, Oaxacan culture, and to really change the perception in people's minds of what Mexican food is and what it can be. Um, and just really, you know, change that perception. And, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a lifelong journey, right? To change people's perception of, you know, what Mexican cooking is a dollar taco to, you know, a $45 ounce shot of, you know, ounce pour, sorry, an ounce pour of mezcal, you know, it's a, it's a long, it's a long, it's, it's really a, a huge juxtaposition, right? I'm paying a dollar for a taco and then you're charging me $45 for an ounce. Like, how does that even make sense in someone's mind? So I, you know, that's just my life's work and my family's work. So can you talk a little bit about mezcal more, maybe more broadly in terms of, you know, I think most of our listeners are going to have at least a, a rough understanding of mezcal, probably in some way in relation to tequila, which is, you know, obviously the agave spirit that most people know best. But in terms of understanding maybe that last piece you were talking about where some of the, the, the fine and sort of rare mezcal comes from, like what is it in, in mezcal? What makes a me one mezcal 10 or 12 or $14 an ounce and some 45 or more? Like, like where does that differentiation come from? Yeah. You know, I think people who are probably familiar with mezcal, there's two there's two camps and there's nothing in the middle, right? You have the super diehard mezcal aficionados who are collecting bottles as we speak, and then you have the very the people who um who are just familiar with the term and just know it as a smoky tequila, which is 
uh, I would say a poor way of different, a poor definition of what really mezcal is. Number one, I, I would never say, I mean, I probably at some point I did say smoky tequila just because I think early, early on, I was just trying to make people just familiarize with what it is. I definitely sure. changed that term to roasted agave. And I think because that really is what you do, you roast the agave before you distill it. So I'll start from like the very beginning, you know, before there was tequila, there was mezcal number one. So every Every tequila is mezcal, but not every mezcal is tequila. Tequila, by definition, um, is a denomination denomination of origin. Sorry, my English is not the best. Uh, Denomination, denomination, denomination of origin. There there we go. There we go. Denomination of origin. So much like champagne, right? Champagne, you can only get champagne from Champagne, France. Correct? Everything else can be named Prosecco or sparkling wine or... um, there's so many other names, right? But uh, champagne, which is technically sparkling wine, you can only get from Champagne, France, and th- that region, right? Same thing yeah. with same thing with tequila and mezcal. Tequila, by definition, there's a couple of things that need to be uh, that you need two boxes that, you, that need to be checked. Number one, uh, tequila can only be named tequila if it's made from a certain region of Tequila Jalisco, which is an actual state in Mexico. Mexico has Oh my gosh, I'm probably going to get my geography wrong. I want to say 32 states. And one of them is being Jalisco. And uh, by definition, you can only name tequila it's if it's made in tequila Jalisco alongside a few other, handful of other states. Um, actually, not a handful, a few other states that have the nomination of origin. Everything outside of that, right? If you make tequila, if you make something like tequila in other states, you cannot call it tequila. You have to call it something else. Uh, some places call it raicilla, some places call it bacanora, um, but the majority of other agave distillates come from Oaxaca, I would say over over 80% for sure today, uh, from the state of Oaxaca, and Oaxaca is mezcal. And the other checkbox that tequila has to fill is really it can only be made from one type of agave uh, variation, the type of plant that you use. So the agave, the the agave that's used is called a tequilana weber, and it has a very scientific uh, name as well. And that really is that like big, you know, big blue agave that you see sort of like, it's not blue, right? It's like the greenish with like bluish tints that you see in pictures and you see in movies that you see in commercials that you see sort of in those very like, if you see a commercial for Herradura Tequila, you see the guy, just the jimador, just like, you know, cutting down those those leaves, right? Like those big old plants. That really is the tequilana weber. And a lot of tequilana weber, like back in the 90s, and what really, really caused a lot of friction in the tequila mezcal world was that a lot of um, tequileros, a lot of tequila makers would actually buy tequila plants from Oaxaca and from other places and, ex- and, and, and take them to Jalisco illegally but because there was such a huge demand of tequila, they just couldn't keep up. And therefore, and, and Oaxaca just really brought the price of the of, of, of the plant, right? Like really drove the price of the plant and changed okay. a lot of economics of, of mezcal back in the in the 90s. So that really are the two boxes that you need to check, right? Um, in Oaxaca, however, mezcal, um, 
can be made with a varietal of plants. And Oaxaca is such a beautiful, eco-diverse state, one of the richest, you know, bio, richest in biodiversities. Um, it has highlands, lowlands. It ha- I mean, it has, you know, it, it, it really is one of the wonders of, Me- of Mexico. Like it is really the variation in plants and chiles and birds. And like, it's just this beautiful sort of, like heart and soul of Mexico in every in every way. So there's so many wild agaves that grow all over that people from regions, you know, from different villages use them to distill their own mezcal for themselves and for the and for the towns. And usually in in, in Oaxaca, you know, if you're talking about, you know, the early two thousands, um or 90s or even before that generations before us uh, i would say up until the 2000s these 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 families and villages would just really you know distill for themselves or for the town right and they would sell them to somebody that was having a birthday party or a wedding and usually in oaxaca weddings are you know a close you know you invite the closest 400 friends that you have so you have huge parties which means a lot of mezcal to be drank so then you you know you go to your to the local person and you're like I love the way he makes mezcal and you know he goes and makes it and makes you know a few liters and what happened is that a lot of people were traveling to Oaxaca uh, there was a lot of pioneers early on that you know that realized like what is this what is this new sort of not new, but what are these flavors that I haven't found before? And this really happened at the time where this uh, country was going through a revolution of this farm to table movement. That, or, I mean, obviously, you know, for those who are probably listening, who are probably early, they're maybe 25 under, probably don't know that, you know, when they were children, people didn't care about where their ingredients came from. I think yeah. that, uh, you know, those of us who are, you know, above 30 remember the time when nobody cared where your orange came from. Nobody cared about where your chicken, nobody was talking about free range chickens before. Right. I, I think that there was a time people don't remember that. So it was right at that time when everybody was talking about what's, you know, Portlandia came out and was like, well, what's the name of this chicken and where does chicken come from? Right. Like there were all these sort of like movements happening. I I would say that always existed, but it was sort of tipping over into mainstream, right? Mainstream realized like we should care about our ingredients and we should care about this. And we were small batch was becoming this hot trend, small batch beer, small batch IPA, small batch whiskeys. Everybody was kind of figuring out like, how do we get smaller batches of things? Um, So Uh at this moment, there was a few pioneers that came around and realized, what is this why am I not having these? These are new flavors to me. Also, our palates were evolving. I think I, I always, you know, compare it to the beer world. In the beer world, there was a time when nobody cared about hoppy and IPA and hazies and all these other things, and people were just okay drinking Corona, right? But I think that people that have evolved their palates, people that love IPAs, are never really going to drink a Corona again, right? Because your palate has evolved and like now you're like this snooty person that like looks down on people ordering a Pacifico or a Corona or a Bud Light. Um, So that kind of happened in the agave world. So people who were really diehard into tequila, then they started trying these small botched whiskeys, realized, oh my gosh, what is this mezcal? And then they would taste it and they would just 
really fill their palates with these nuances I've never really tried. And then they, and then there was a story behind it, right? It was a small batch and I found it off the road in Oaxaca when I was finding myself. And, you know, reality is just a bunch of white guys that were, you know, going through Oaxaca and they were like, oh my yeah. God, I went in my, in my car and like, I found these, you know, brown people on the side of the road and they made this thing and oh my God, everybody was having this like, oh my God, brown people, indigenous people, this is what they drink, right? Um and it just kind of exploded from there. Um, and it just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now you find yourself in this situation where, I mean, I remember in my restaurant where it, I was like, I was having, I was having difficult difficulties finding mezcales, right? Because I wanted to really have every mezcal available for, for our customers. And now I'm at the point where I remember when I wanted to have every mezcal available, and I've been having this sort of like mind shift in the past, you know, few months where I just want to have maybe 10, right? Because it's just gone to the point where it's just, it's too much. It's like the idealization of these, you know, of, of, of this indigenous story and these, you know, oh my gosh, when at this, when I realized very early on that it was the same the majority of the brands that you see out there today are made in a handful of palenques and those stories that we heard early on of this is from a family this is from this are very very few and those are the ones that are the most expensive um and that's when we get to the that's when you say what's the difference it's that it's that it's gone to this point where you have uh, a handful of producers of mezcal that make the same juice for 80% of the brands you see, but you okay. have then those, those small batch stories, right. That like we first fell in love with mezcal for, and the economics are just not there for that bottle to be $45. Like that bottle is going to be anywhere from 200 to $300. It's just what it is, what it is. But that's because there's so much that goes into it. A plant can take up to 20 years to grow. This is all handmade. It's our people's lives. And I think that people who don't understand it or who fail to see it are, are just people who really don't value the culture and don't value that work that goes behind mezcal. However, though, so th- then you have those mezcales that are sort of like very few that make that do it well that are have invested a lot in the past five years and past 10 years who have built their own palenques and you know who are making uh, how are making great mezcal that you can find at a at a at a at a at a, at, a, at, a, at, a um, at an affordable price i don't know if like that was too long uh but that really is sort of like mezcal in a nutshell i would say well, it's obviously a, a big topic, so I wouldn't expect you to be able to cover it in 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of other questions um, that are sort of uh, move out of what uh, you were just saying. I want to start here. Um, a conversation that's been going on around tequila in particular of late is, you know, as you touched on this idea of cultural appropriation, you have a lot of, you know, an ever-growing number of sort of celebrity tequila brands, often people who have, you know, don't have any kind of historic Right. You know, or, or sort of ancestral connection to Mexico. Is that happening in Mezcal? Are 100%. you afraid that it will happen? Oh, it's happening. Yeah. It's happening. I mean, you have, it's happening. I, I would say 
70% of the brands are owned by white dudes. I mean, you know, like it's, and, and it's the same story. And I, and I remember I, I've gone to, I mean, I, I've been in situations where I look at them straight in the eye and I'm like, do you have anyone who's from Oaxaca working with you? And it's like, no. And then you see their Instagram and it's just like, you know, like these people with dream catchers and flowy outfits, like on their way to yeah. Coachella, you know? And it's like, you're selling this lifestyle and you're just sort of butchering and violating the essence of what mezcal is. Right. Um, but yes, it's happening, but it happened with tequila, right? It happens. It happens with everything. Really. It happens with every culture and that they, they have the audacity, audacity to think that it's okay. Um, and they have like zero respect. I mean, you see it in Oaxacan cooking. You see it how in Mexico, in Mexico, as a country in Mexico, like, if you're not from Oaxaca as a chef, God, like you, you would never open a Oaxacan restaurant in Mexico and other states. If you're not from Oaxaca, unless you partner with a Oaxacan chef, unless you actually like, there's probably been two Mexican chefs who have opened Oaxacan restaurants outside of Oaxaca, but they've done it with Oaxacan chefs out of Oaxaca. Yet in the, right. yet in the U S you have, white chefs left and right opening Oaxacan restaurants with a zero, like with zero remorse of appropriating a culture just because they think it's okay. And that's what's happening with mezcal. And that just comes with everything that, you know, has been spoken about in the past year of, you know, this place where they just feel like they have the, they just think it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So maybe from that, that perspective or from that point, that position, for, you know, to be honest, a lot of our listeners are, are white people, I'm guessing. I mean, we don't collect. Right. No, and, specifically, and honestly, but, it's not anything. <laughs> no, like, right. Uh-huh. No, I, I understand. I'm not I'm not uh, I'm saying, you know, what then as a as a maybe as a consumer or even as a member of the trade, you know, a bartender or whatever in in the United States as, you know, not whatever your race or background is, if you're not, you know, Oaxacan, what is in your eyes the way to interact with Mezcal respectfully? Like, how should it be? Uh, treated and and how would you like to see it, um, you know, whether it's talked about, consumed, positioned, et cetera, um, in settings, because in the end, you know, people want to drink it and people want to serve it. And so, um, you know, it's not only going to be um, in the hands of those who are Oaxacan or of Oaxacan descent. 100%. I'm so glad that you asked me this question. Number one, um, obviously right now there hasn't been any, any travel, right? Because of where we are in the world. Things are opening up and, you know, I highly encourage people that, you know, come 2022, you yourself book a trip to Oaxaca and go experience it yourself. Go support those farmers yourself. Go to Oaxaca, go there and and educate yourself on what it is, number one. Number two, support brands that are actually owned by people of color, by people who are either from Oaxaca or who, who are Mexican, Right. Um, I would say like, those are the two major things that I would say and how to, and number three, don't ever, ever like, you know, now that I have the audience, I, this is what I always tell people. Don't ever say out loud. You can think it and it's fine. Don't you ever out loud say that's too expensive for me, for like tequila. That's too expensive for mezcal. Like, how dare you sell this mezcal? Like, too expensive for Mexican food. Too expensive for mezcal. That's just, in my opinion, a racist comment. So, like, I I think that that goes 
and, and because those 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 bottles that are pricier are the ones that come from those farmers that actually bring what what like Oaxaca is um and who are Mexican owned but people are expecting it to be a two dollar shot of tequila right like of hornitos, which if that's okay that's what you want to do go for it but for me I, that, that's what that's my that's been sort of like my life mission i'm curious too you know you mentioned this a little bit um when we we're talking about how you know what mezcal is and how it's made a little bit but an interesting uh piece of it that i think not um not all of our listeners can be familiar with is the idea of some of these mezcal bottlings that are um a specific uh, a single agave species and, you know, that compared to potentially um, something that's, I guess, more of a blend. Is that is that something that you find interesting? Because I certainly have found in my tastings that there is a there could be pretty distinct differences across these different um, wild agave species, like for people who are interested in exploring, you know, nuance and difference in, in spirits. What, what is that? What is that? Uh, what is that like? I think why people love mezcal so much and why I love mezcal so much and why I remember I sort of, even my love for mezcal grew is because you can have two bottles of mezcal and they look the same. They're, they're clear. They're not repo. They're not aged. They're not hidden by any sort of, you know, uh, aging process. There's no, there's no, there's no wrapping, right, of the flavor of the actual agave plant. And you can have an espadín. You can have a tobasiche. You can have a papalo medley. We can have these three different agave plants, and you would put them next to each other, and they will taste wildly different. And I think that that's why people love wine so much, why people love like these sort of, you know, that's why people are collecting these bottles. And, and then you won't, it won't taste like that again in the next, in the next batch, right? That was only done like a two, in the 2010 or 2015 because the plant was a certain way. And I think a lot of people, it's one of the first times that in the spirit world that was seen. A lot of, you yeah. know, when you look at whiskeys or when you look at repo, uh, reposado tequilas or añejo tequilas, that comes from the barrels and the aging process, right? There's no aging here other than the plant. And I think, and, and people think like, well, you can only get that in the wine because it's not distilled, right? When you distill it, how can it be different? And I think that's what blows, what, what, what like it, it blows people's minds. And I, that's it definitely what, blew mine the first time. <laughs> right. And it's like, but because when you like, let's say you, you take 10 tequilas, right. And they're all blancos. I mean, maybe from brand to brand, there's a slight differentiation. And for the very sophisticated palette, you can tell from, you know, this brand to that brand to that brand. And there is, but there's an underlying, like very similar sort of like taste, right. Well, you're using the same agave species as you said before, right, so right. there's only so much variation that's possible there. And in Oaxaca, what happens because of the plant, and because you're so used to that, though, like your mind is used to seeing a blanco tequila, so it should all taste the same, right? Like your mind is so trained, but then when you taste them side by side, like your mind is just blown, like oh my gosh, I've never even like how can this be possible? How can this be so different? And then you go and explain it's a different agave plant. And then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So it did, and you kind of dig into the region, the type of distillation process. So it really is very, it's very similar to that of the wine world. And I think that's why people just love mezcal so much because it just gives them 
something else, right? And I think as drinkers, people who love to drink, it, I mean, obviously, like, obviously, you know, you drink to drink, but if people who genuinely love the taste and understand, like, there's much, there's more and more to drinking than just doing it for getting drunk. It's about enjoying. That's why they love mezcal so much, because it just gives them a different taste they've never had before. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful place to leave it. And certainly echoes my own experience as I've um, had the chance to learn a little more about uh, mezcal and um, we'll definitely be excited to finally get a chance to take a trip to Oaxaca, uh, as you said, hopefully in 2022. Um, and Bruce, I just want to thank you so much for your time. Really no, thank you. Your insight. And um, if, for those of you listening who are curious where you can uh, find more uh, of Bruce's work, both written and then, of course, the restaurants on metals will be in the description of the show. So you can click those and find them easily. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.